0: Anyway, it's just a structure in case I get so excited and we go totally off, off track, which I'm likely to do. You're
1: right. Oh, no, it's me. I'm the one that yabbers. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so, Sarah Wolferston, welcome to the Travelling Through podcast. This is the Travelling Through podcast. I'm your host, Emma, and today's guest is Sarah Wolferston. She met and married a Sicilian, and together they set up Alivu Sicily. This is her story about growing olives, olive oil, and the benefits to our health, as well as her views on London, the world, and life. Thank you, Emma. (laughs) It's lovely to have you here on the show, and it's been a while since we've actually caught up. Is it like five, six years ago, maybe just before I started the bookshop? My daughter turned
1: seven. So, and I think, I don't think you actually met her. I think you might have seen her in my tummy. I think, (laughs) yes. I think you were heavily pregnant the the last time I saw her. Yeah. Yeah. And we were packing up our little flat in um, Peckham to um, go to move to Sicily. That's the last time I saw you, I think, around then. And And you were embarking on
0: your bookshop. That's right. I was. And that was sort of a five year adventure as well so yes Mm. a lot of time has passed but it's great that we've (laughs) reconnected again I kind of watched what you were doing on Instagram with your Alivu company about olive oil but we'll come on to that in a sec because I was also trying to remember the first time we actually met and I think it was in Kosovo wasn't it where you were doing your master's I don't know
1: if we actually met in Kosovo. I think I met everybody in your team, but you were away those... Because I was only in Kosovo for uh, three weeks, I think, right. that time. Yeah. But um, I spoke to lovely Spanish chap. Francisco. Yeah. Francisco, that's <laughs> right. And an Indian guy who was working for Indian oh, American, for the, Indian Canadian. The, yeah, that's
0: right. UN. Um I've forgotten his name now. Gosh, that's right. And then he left
1: actually, and someone else took over from him.
0: But then we we did actually meet in Strasbourg. And then, yeah, when I
1: did my, um, yeah, because that was, in. that was my kind of, I found out about the Council of Europe, really, during that internship, even though the, my master's going to be about um the UN, actually, and the UN in Kosovo, its yeah. mission. But when I got there, and because I didn't, I wasn't lucky enough to meet you, I met so many people who've talked about the Council of Europe, the Council of Europe, the Council of Europe. And like many British people, I kind of mi- mishmashed the Council of Europe with the, the European with the Council Europe. yeah. or the European Union. And I, and I learned about their standards, but we'd had a lecture, I think, on international standards and it was one of a zillion organisations. So it was a real eye-opener. So I applied for the internship at the Strasbourg headquarters and that's where we met. So I, I'd already sort of heard about you. You just called on the <laughs> Like yeah, then I think I presented you with my MA dissertation, which sort of critiqued international organisations. You did. And, well, the, and the, the false dichotomy of diversity and universalism. And I think you were like, right, OK, <laughs> this is quite, not what it's like when you're actually doing it. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I know.
0: <laughs> but, yes, that's true. There's, but that's the thing, isn't it? There's the um,
1: the very cerebral theory of a dissertation. Yeah, exactly. To, yeah. It,
0: exactly. It's, it's... When you're just putting pen to paper and then actually the, the reality of it, a the theoretical side and then the actual practical side yeah. are, are in some ways poles apart. But there are links between the two, but um, they're quite... Yeah, and
1: I, and I think you do have to approach every practical thing you do with the why am I doing it and exactly. how am I doing it? And that's yeah. definitely, you know, I think that we can criticise all we like. But when you actually are doing something, yeah. then you have to scrutin. You know, it's, it's very difficult to follow... Pure ethics and guidelines when it comes to your diet or when it comes to working with partners or when it comes Absolutely. to how you walk down the street, you know, you just yeah. wing it, don't you? Most of the yeah. time, yeah, no, like no, you're, definitely. Like your tea cu- cozy, oh, my tea cozy, yes. Did you like Which my tea I saw cozy today <laughs> on Instagram?
0: Yeah. It looks amazing, <laughs> by the way. You're very talented. Oh, thank you very much. It just fits around, and really. you have to put it on a bit of a funny angle, but <laughs> you can't see it from the photograph <laughs> anyway. <laughs> then we met quite a few times in, in Strasbourg at that point. Were you involved in archaeology? What was yeah, so my original degree
1: is archaeology and anthropology. And I did some digs during my university career, you have to, to be trained as an archaeologist. And then um, on one of these digs, I met Paolo, who's now my partner, my husband, the father of my children, yes. um, uh, in Sicily on a dig. Um, and then I traveled a bit in South America because that was kind of my at the time my that's right I would forgotten you did that yeah well we've we've had lots of yeah we've had lots of long chats about traveling in South America haven't we I I discovered South America and traveling at the same time on a gap year I'm total middle class Brit from the (laughs) 90s but um because I'm mixed heritage mixed ethnicity there's um always been a bit of me which has wanted to sort of explore the rest of the world travel my parents were travelers my mum my yeah. is originally from Egypt that's but right. she's Maltese heritage yeah she'd never been to Malta because like many in the Maltese diaspora I mean Malta is tiny yeah and, and the population of Malta I think it's about half a million but the diaspora is like six million so there's right. so many more wow. so I think that Maltese are travelers they're seafarers they've always left and they've yeah. always settled actually really well where they've been which I think is fascinating, that idea of what culture you retain and which bit is integrated and what how does that work. Anyway, and my dad was a child of, of, a, of the army. His parents were in India and the States and Germany and and my parents met in Canada which is where I was born oh
0: wow I um were yeah. um, lots
1: of doctors being recruited from the UK to Canada in the mm-hmm. 60s and 70s because they had a skills shortage so now we recruit from abroad Canada was recruiting from you know ship basically Yes. and so they met there as Brits abroad okay. of course Brits abroad but not really Brits abroad because they were a little bit international so they obviously found something <laughs> in each other and one um midwinter I think I was very tiny actually so a bit traumatized by the birth of their two daughters really close to each other Mm. my sister's only 18 months older than me they decided to go on a holiday for two weeks to Hawaii and they left these two little girls with my long-suffering granny in the cold winter of Montreal which is where I was born and they went to Hawaii on holiday (laughs) yes as you do (laughs) well when it's freezing in in Montreal I think you go anywhere where there's sunshine yes and my mum had always wanted to go to Hawaii. It was, it was the Magnum period, and um, what was the hop show? God, I've had a brain uh, drain. Uh,
0: um, was at Dukes of Hazard? No, it was. Um, no, that's the states.
1: Yeah. Um, Anyhow, um, they um, they bumped into somebody that my dad knew who said, space. "Oh, Martin, you should come and live in Hawaii." So they moved Hawaii on the back of bumping into somebody on holiday. <laughs> so then I then I grew up in Hawaii. Um, very tropical, learning to hula really? dance. I didn't um, wear shoes. When we went on holiday in Britain, they had to buy shoes for us, basically, because we were constantly barefoot and flip-flops. Fantastic. I came to Britain two or three times growing up to meet family, and that was kind of the home that was in my head was Britain, even though I didn't really know what it was like to live in Britain. Yes. Because I had parents who were constantly telling me, oh, well, in Britain, we wouldn't do it this way. These Americans, you know, <laughs> so they were othering the Americans okay. because they were othered in America. No, I think I was a bit confused by the time you know I got to about eight or nine and they were saying, oh, we'll move back to Britain next year and never did. And eventually when I was nine, they moved back to Britain. I think it was the point where, they, you know, I was I was nearly nine. My sister was nearly 11. I think they thought, God, if we don't do it now, they really will be American. <laughs> <But>
0: have, <laughs> the other within.
1: Have you got so, a Canadian uh, then,
0: passport, though? I've got a Canadian passport, yeah. yeah. Okay, very multinational. Um,
1: but, and I've not been back to Canada since I was a wee little really? one-year-old, basically. I know. Wow. I've been gallivanting in other more exotic places, yeah. but I really must go back. But it's yeah. funny, like I, I only feel that connection to Canada when I meet other Canadians. Mm. It's weird, isn't it? Because I've not lived there as a, as a sentient being. No, no, no. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if I'd go back and feel something from the smell of it. or I've heard lots of stories, amazing stories about it. Okay. Anyway, I guess that kind of explains why I'm a bit of a smorgasbord and and liked to sort of like many cultures and understanding cultures and where we all come from. But also, I think that island start made me think I'm going to find another island, <laughs> another small warm island, not a cold well, damp one. one. <laughs> well, Hawaii was quite quite warm, wasn't it? But uh... I mean, I love Britain. I love Britain's climate as well. I've come to appreciate it in all of its in all of its wonderful soggy complexity. Um, uh, But we do have, I think us Brits do have that kind of image of sort of utopia in the med, don't we? It's it's the place we dream of. Yes, definitely. So yeah, when I went on this dig and met Paolo, I was kind of like, oh, this is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And it kind of answered that lost bit of me, which had been island and that bit of, you know, so my mum and dad were very different in there. They were attracted to each other. They had similarities, but of course my dad was very stiff upper lip British boarding school ex-arm, right. you know army kid whereas my mum had this story of migration but from this wonderful she she has such wonderful memories of Egypt and growing up in Egypt has she? Okay. Um, that we heard a lot about that culture and about all the the Maltese and the Greek and the Italians and the you know it was she. so I it kind of it really it drew, it drew me that side of my heritage as well because yeah. they, they are in a way opposite you think of British, you know, Britishness, upper class Britishness, and it's quite kind of stern and don't emotions. And yeah. whereas in your imagination, the, the med is the opposite to all that, isn't it? Definitely, so definitely. And I, I, it has been a bit of a homecoming. Yes. So
0: and so that explains why you have such an attraction to Sicily now. Yeah. As well. Yeah. And, definitely. And, and it's,
1: it's definitely part of my soul I think that was is sort of wanted to be in the southern southern Europe area yeah yeah
0: so when you came back from traveling
1: South America you
0: did you go to university or were you were in the middle of university or was it the end of university so yeah
1: I went I did, I did a stint in Chile before university and learned to speak Spanish and mm-hmm. absolutely loved the Chileans and Chilean culture and I was really affected by their story as well and what had happened to them over yeah. the last century but specifically you know before all that stuff i think that kind of really awoke i woke up my kind of the political side of my because i was only 18 19 you yeah. know um and then I went to university, and when I finished university, I had, had lots of scholarships and grants to go back to South America on digs. And I was—I think I was, at that time, plotting to, to do an MA in international development right. and carry on the great adventure of travelling. Because much as I loved archaeology, I think I did digs in ar- northwest Argentina and northern Chile, um, I found it really hard to, to sort of be doing... Research that's hmm. really important. Don't get me wrong. In a place where there's such poverty and yeah. rural and rural rural poverty is not just a, a, a phenomenon from northern Argentina. I mean, we've got it here. We've got yeah. it in southern Med. It's all over the world. And so, for me to sort of be indulging in my sort of colonial activity of digging up someone's past <laughs> to tell them about it this yeah. is your past, why don't you value it? You know, I, I, f- I found it really, it didn't sit well with me. Yeah. Not that it's not important to do, but I just found I needed to do something that was more about people's contemporary needs here and now.
0: Yeah.
1: So I, I thought I was going to do an MA, but in the meantime, an MA in that, um, yes. but in the meantime, I'd met Paolo. So my allegiance slightly swapped from Latin America to, <laughs> to Italy. So when I got back from that, I was another sort of nearly a year of, of doing these little research projects. Mm. Um. I went to live in Rome and lived <laughs> in Italy for three years. Well, yeah, not, I have to say that part of the attraction was living in Rome. It wasn't just power because <laughs> <laughs> I'd visited Rome on a yeah. field trip and I just thought, what a place. This is amazing. And I think I kind of realized if I wanted to, to travel and, and be somewhere different, it didn't necessarily have to be in the other end of the world. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like yes, yes. Close to home, we have all these amazing places in Europe. Um, and so I lived in Rome, and I worked for the United Nations for a bit, actually. Did you? Um, yeah, I worked for the World Food Programme. Oh my goodness! Wow. So all. And then the... I worked for, yeah, then I worked for IOM, the International Organization for Migration. Right. Okay. And that's how I've met um, Hakan and Jenna, yeah. Yeah. who invited me to Kosovo
0: okay yeah that's all so, the connections are coming together it's, the, the
1: connections yeah so it was kind of because of this I worked the project I worked on with IOM was really interesting because it was um the psychosocial unit mm-hmm. that was trying to do not just migration management movement wise movement and basically IOM was like policing migration movement isn't mm-hmm. it in the nicest way but um not always in the nicest way either you know it's kind <laughs> <Yeah>. of <laughs> anyway it it can be a bit of the hand of government an international hand of government and it's well it has to do if that's its remit but this little unit was a bit of a wild card unit because it was run by a um a psychologist who had a sort of migration background in Mm -hmm. which he'd gone through more of an anthropology of psychoanalysis he was more ethnic narration and talking cure kind of Jungian, whatever, yeah, um, and he was doing emergency interventions in big camps where you didn't have a set up medical mental health team to work with immediate traumas, yeah. And when Kosovo happened, of course, lots of international money flocked to Kosovo, didn't it? So yeah, yeah. they came up with a project, and it was all emergency money in Italy because that's what Italian cooperation is about. But they couldn't do anything longer term, so. Right. It's hard to do emergency mental health, so Definitely. they came up with this idea of um a, a archive of memory. Mm-hmm. So as IDPs and refugees returned to Kosovo, to sometimes places, different places where they lived, or sometimes places where they lived where horrible things had happened. Yes. they came up with this idea of narration and drawing and telling and cooking and and theatre to kind of narrate those memories to try to not reinforce the sort of victim aggressor binary to get them part you know it was really hard job to do yeah. because it was so early on it was yes, yes. 2001 i think when yeah. they did that project 2001
0: 2002
1: okay. so it really so i found it really fascinating how you know looking at the past and, and narrating the past even the far away past you know yes, like prehistoric yeah. past can have this effect of grounding us and helping us to see past a current problem or yeah. a current trauma or not go see past it but process it in a way that's more healthy yeah yes. wow that's fascinating because it
0: also, it was, <laughs> so it was also that's between... how Kosovo happened okay so that's how that all began my goodness so that's and how it's... that began yeah so already the tapestry of your past as it were or, or your your oh, ancestral okay. roots uh, was already coming together to do with in terms of food islands migration language
1: yeah and yeah so it, I think I'm definitely was trying to sort of a little bit find you know find out about myself when I more I got interested in in migration and storytelling and stories and narration I think it was a bit of me that was you know trying to work out which which part of me was British and which part of me was from somewhere else and I guess when you come to Britain when you're nearly a teenager when you move anyway when you're nearly a teenager it's quite hard to settle down isn't it definitely definitely. um so on top of that people say oh you sound a bit American and I wasn't American do you know what I mean but of course I sounded a bit American and I felt very different to people I grew up in when we moved to Britain we went to Taunton and hardly anybody that I met in Taunton hadn't been born in Taunton (laughs) so people were a little bit weirded out you yeah. know so um, I mean it
0: was a, that must have been very difficult in fact because when everybody's from one place like that mm. and only know one place and you had already mm. had that wealth of experience of moving around and traveling as, yeah. it, as it were your perspective on life would be very different
1: yeah, I think um yeah, definitely connect when with people who are on your London London focus of your podcast that mm. say there's a place for everybody in London and we've all got stories, migration mm. stories, because we do even in Taunton, but <laughs> <laughs> you know um and increasingly more so in yes. small market towns yeah. in Britain. But um I guess there's sort of mainstream Narratives like of oh yeah, my family's been here for years, and if you don't have that one, you don't say you know? <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly.
1: Yes, or if you do, then you run. You're running a gauntlet of of, of perhaps intimidating people. I found that. I mean, I love. I live in Malmesbury now in North Wiltshire. After Rome, we were 12 mm. 13 years in London, and we met up in London. That's right. When yes, you left yes. Well, quite a lot. We were good at. It's ha- funny. You're good at connecting with your tribe in London. Yeah, because you kind of have to, don't you? It's so big. It is. Um, that you kind of will travel three miles slash an hour across, <laughs> across London to meet up with people and you keep those connections alive because it's, it, it helps you to survive the the maelstrom the, of London. The chaos, you know? of, the chaos of London. It, it, no you're yeah. absolutely
0: right and you're always trying to connect with people that you feel an affinity with because that's important mm. for your survival as well as how you live in, in a big city I think and mm. it's, it's rare that in a big city that all your friends, all the people that that you have an affinity with, are all in one area, unless you, as a group, all move to one area, which is,
1: yeah, is very un- which, unlikely. Which, given like the varieties of incomes that we're on in London and the you know the way that London works, I know that there are mixed areas in London where there's a massive house next to a, a tiny flat. Mm. It, it, compared to other cities, it's actually got quite. Um, a patchwork of, of of sort of posh and not posh, you know what I mean? Yes, yeah. But, grossly speaking, you know, as, as you get older and start having kids, there is a bit of a movement north and west for yes. people who can afford it, you know. Not always, but when we decided to move to Sicily, we knew in our heart of hearts that we probably wouldn't stay in Sicily forever, mm. Um, but that when we came back, it probably wouldn't be to mm. London, because working in archaeology and I I was working at the time after the council I got so I worked for the Council of Europe when I met you and then I carried on a little consultancy contracts with the Council of Europe but I found a kind of home for my consultancy within my former master's team so I did my master's at the end in cultural heritage studies which right. is when, when I met you yeah at UCL the Institute of Archaeology yes yeah and then yeah so then when I came back from Strasbourg with these little ditty contracts I worked for a year for a, a building heritage consultant because he had been an expert for the Council of Europe before right Paul okay. so he was in touch with the Council of Europe as an expert and took me on as a first you know to work together on these expertise but then the crisis hit 2008 and I, I managed to go back to the to the institute not as a student but as a part-time employee of their sort of consultancy unit within the within the department of archaeology Archaeology. yes yeah i'm still working there now on and off i've been yeah on and off i've been working for this team that's part of the institute of archaeology okay because i'd totally Um, forgotten
0: that i'd i had when i came back so I came back in two thousand and twelve. I think yes, it was. Yeah, and I dragged you in, didn't That's I? I dragged you. In. <laughs> I totally forgot. I came across this presentation that I that I put together for UCL. I was so nervous talking to all these students about Kosovo. Yeah. And what do you talk about? Because it's such a huge subject area. But yeah, in yeah. fact, it was. I really, for me, it was a very cathartic thing to have done to actually oh, talk to to students who were, you know, still young, fresh faced, and mm. ready for that. That involvement in 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 an international environment or a, a European yeah. environment to get out there and try to to do what we I suppose had been doing or, or looking mm. at and uh, that was very mm. um it was very rewarding as well to to see so many young people ready to take on that opportunity mm. but I mean I don't know that it's an interesting question now I don't know whether you know the answer to it, is how with with the current situation and with all the migration issues that we've had. Uh, or Europe are are facing how Mm. how this has affected things like general projects like the archaeology projects and doing things like that is it
1: in terms of research I think that um I think we're still part of Europe the Horizon 2020 program we're still we're sort of signed up to it but I'm not sure whether that's because of funding agreements rather you know pragmatically they put in x amount of years of money yes. and the projects are slightly longer term than many of the other sort of two years shorter cooperation projects I don't know but I don't know if we're still part of interreg leader plus I'm not sure mm. but I know certainly we're out of other learning projects schemes like Erasmus right because that's the project huge. I'm doing
0: yeah
1: which is huge yeah. because Erasmus as Erasmus also uh, has taken on it's the new name for all the Leonardo da Vinci projects that were and the Grundvik projects that were. So it's a very, it's like three schemes in one, and it's all about professionals, lifelong learning, mobility, and the students that we think of going to each other's universities for exchanges. I mean, that's just one of the sort of streams of it. Mm. And the project I'm working on now, which interestingly is about, about the Faro Convention and professional training for heritage and and communities that work in heritage yeah Um, the uk got into that ucl got into that as the final call last march
0: oh my goodness so just so that's that's, the the
1: last yeah so in november the last um erasmus plus strategic partnerships will be taking place that but i don't think that many universities actually were that interested in erasmus projects it's been much more um education institutes mm-hmm. that have been doing that and because that's very diverse sector in the UK they haven't been there are a lot of Erasmus sort of partnerships in the UK but it hasn't been as strong on, as on the continent anyway so yes, I yeah. don't think the impact will be massive for I mean it's massive for me that I've course. specialized in this European heritage yeah <laughs> heritage yeah. convention so I don't know where what you know what when I when this project current project which is called which is borrowed the, the Council of Europe's terms um, net title People Places Stories. Okay, yeah. It's borrowed that straight out of the Faro action plan. Yeah. yeah. Um, when that comes, when People Places Stories comes to, it, and I don't, I'm not sure where my European heritage background will will uh, fly <laughs> next. Well, <laughs> you know what but I mean? It
0: was because, through Erasmus also that you you got a scholarship to do to, to learn about olive oil or about. Olives. That's right.
1: Exactly. So when when. Um, so I was ticking away with the UCL projects where, yes. you know, I brought you in for a seminar on archeology span and development. And I was working on a, an Erasmus project actually called educate, which was for entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs to get training in the cultural creative sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so we got all these lovely, really enthusiastic graduates and I'm sure, I think I talked to you about it because I thought your bookshop would be an amazing host organization, but you weren't That's quite ready right. to open up. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, but you gave me some really good tips of other cultural projects that were going on foods and travel. And, and I think we put somebody in one of your, we've got, we got a, a student to go to one of your recommendations, actually, that a fight, the food and migration oh, did storytelling. You? Yeah, oh, Yeah. She okay. loved it. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I was, I was sitting in on one of their lectures. I thought, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to get a bit of this entrepreneurial training <laughs> because it's quite hard to get, you know, to, To justify training for yourself when you're busy in a consultancy project, and although I had like five days down on my budget for training, yes, yes. I I I made the case that I needed to go on this training because it was the project, (laughs) and I needed to know what the students were doing. So I sat in on this five days of of UCL's uh, entrepreneur training. UCL's got a really good, strong department in training graduates for entrepreneurship, but it's it's a bit skewed toward the science degrees. And anyway, so I sat in and I thought. Oh, I, I could do this, and, and also I found out there that there is funding. There was for the UK, now there isn't for people to get hosted by another business. So much like students go to another university to yes. do a term, young young, by which they mean anybody who's doing a business for the first time can okay. get. Could I think it's still still dribbling on actually. This scheme could go to if you if you're interested in um, I don't know. You want to set up a vineyard in the UK, but you want to learn the ropes. You can get an exchange and go to France or Spain or wherever to find out about how they do wine growing. Brilliant. From the commercial side to the agricultural side, then you can help. This helps you you come up with a business plan. You get funded. So I came up with a business plan for an olive oil import business. Okay. And then we spent six months um, working with an olive oil farmer who exports her oil to. um, Where does she Sweden? And so she, she showed us the ropes and we got funded to be in Sicily for six months, which was great because my maternity pay had just, <laughs> was just coming to a close. So is that and, why, um,
0: so sorry to interrupt you, but is that why you it. went to Sicily in the first place? So because you'd got that. So we primary. went to
1: Sicily in the first place because I said to Paolo, when when we've got two small children in London and we're both working, because we'll both have to work to be able to afford the child care, we're going to go completely mad. So something's going to change, something has to change. And yes. he also, Paolo did... um looked after Elio quite a lot during Elio's first year because he was doing his, doing, not doing his PhD. PhD I remember. <laughs> so I think Paolo had realised that he wasn't going to see our second child really very much <laughs> with the rhythm that he had. I mean, out yeah. of the house, because archaeologists leave the house so early, they've got to be on site at eight o'clock. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, you know, he would never see this child. So with paternity being so bad and the, you know, and I, he could have shared it with me, but that was really impractical. And Yes, yeah. And it was, the cost would have been... Anyway, we're leaving London. So I said, we better start looking for jobs. And, and of course, the Southwest was calling us because it, we knew that place better. We had friends here. And, um, and we just sort of floated the idea because we've been obsessed with our olive oil and trying to find a cheap way of getting our olive oil to the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, because previously, everybody who visited us would stick a tin in their suitcase Oh, really?
0: Bring back. In fact, maybe we need to backtrack a bit on that as well. But maybe yeah. about the whole olive oil thing and how that came about, because we've yeah, got to kind okay, of, we've we'll I'll backtrack. So, pa-
1: Paolo's family is uh, is we're farmers, like small scale, tiny, you know, little farm here, little farm there. Um, but of course, Sicily's gone through massive demographic change, um, yeah. and a, a massive, uh, lifestyle change in a way for the last fifty years. So, your grandparents. Went to school. Finished school. They finished school, which which means they went. Till they were fourteen. Mm-hmm. My goodness. And then, got, yeah. And then they got their trades, uh, or yeah. they went back to the farm. You yeah. know. So Paolo's grand on one side, his grandfather was a butcher and had masses of land for his animals mm-hmm. with his seven brothers or eight <laughs> brothers. I can't remember how many they were. I think, was, I think there were seven of them in total. And um, on the other side of the family, there were peasant farmers, basically with with a few fields. But his dad was one of actually originally one of eight. And then because he was called Cesare Ottavio, which means Caesar the Eighth. <laughs> because Caesar because his, Caesar because he, his family was a good fascist family in the 30s. My goodness. Because agriculture was uh, raised up and brought to a higher um, status in the South by Mussolini. OK. So they were proud fascists. And he was the eighth one. So <laughs> a couple of and But all of his siblings were daughters. So, they gradually, the father and mother decided just to educate the daughters selling off the land. Right. So now they've got one field left from that side of the family, oh, wow. which has got olive trees on it. Right. So it's quite an emotional field for that of side of the course. family because it's yeah. the one bit. Yes, like, it's your connection. Part of their right, part. you know. Yeah. yeah. And they're, they're, they're a real example of, of sort of what's happened in Sicily over the last 50, 60 years as people have left the land. But they still have really strong memories associated with the the calendar and and what they did. But the the land has enabled them to get an education to leave, much like has happened in a way to many of us in the last three, four hundred years ago in Britain, when people started getting trade and industrial revolution, going to cities, the north of Britain, you know. So yeah, I think there's a very emotional tie to the food that families still eat from their land. So the majority of land is is let, let out or there's an agreement with a local farmer who plants a crop on it mm. so you have nothing to do with that crop mm-hmm. they get subsidies the wheat goes somewhere else you know but the trees you still get the oil from your trees so that becomes kind of like like a holy grail of foods because of course it's used in absolutely everything, everything. in sicily yeah. they yeah. Do ev- there's no other oil in the house i think the average in the in italy is 13 liters a head a year. A year. All right. When goodness. I think in the south, particularly my family, you could probably my Sicilian family double that, triple that. So we were getting this precious oil that was getting brought to us in suitcases to Rome, and then to, the, to when we moved to London to to London, yes. and then you couldn't carry liquids on airplanes anymore. Of <laughs> <laughs> so you're plugging it back I've... in the airport. <laughs> yeah, just open my five liter tin, <laughs> That's <laughs> bathe my body in it like the ancient greeks Exactly.
0: it's
1: a real problem and of course every, oh, everybody who came so at about that time of uh, it was a sort of post 2005 that people started raving about olive oil yeah. everywhere in the world yes. yeah because i think that some initial studies on its health benefits had grown in scale a lot of eu funding going into this because of eu oil lobbies so you know everything has got a reason hasn't it but there were huge okay. increase in the number of health studies about it from going from 20 people to thousands of people okay. proving how healthy olive oil was for your heart for diabetes cancer all of these claims you're not really necessarily allowed to make but there's yes. so much now that that says that olive oil is has got a magic ingredient compared to the next most equivalent seed oil so lots of seed oils have have a good balance of fats omega six omega-3 yeah. have lots of antioxidants have lots of you know lots of them are up there with olive oil in terms of, a, of a, a good style of fat and good content yeah but there's something there is something about olive oil I think which gives it that extra punch partly because of the way it's made, I think, as well. Anyway, that's another podcast. So we were, <laughs> so people were, were tasting this oil, and again, I think around then we were having a bit of a wave of back-to-the-land, river-cottage style, you know, like learning to grow. You know how exactly. these things come in cycles, yeah, don't they? Yes. And so I think we were really romantically taken by that idea of our olive oil, which is such a high-value commodity within the family, within the culture, mm-hmm. and the fact that we were trying to leave London where we felt out of control of so many things in terms of the cost of living and, and well-being and... And so we said, okay, let's go to Sicily. We've got a house in Sicily that we could sort of resuscitate because you can't sell houses in inland Sicily or people are giving them away. Right. That's another podcast, the one euro house scheme. Exactly. There's there's, there's such depressed economies that people are giving away houses because it costs them more to pay tax on their house Mm. than it does Mm. that they can ever get income from it, even renting it. So there's an empty house that Paolo's family couldn't sell. And we said, well, we'll move to it. And, And then we can decide we can apply to jobs in the UK from there or if we can make a go of it with olive oil business we can try to do a bit of olive oil business we had no idea really we just had two small children and we were exhausted so (laughs) we wanted family around us yes and so that's how it came about it's kind of accidental let's just go for a few months and see what happens but um when the Erasmus funding happened and we met this lovely lady who set up her olive oil business she's called Dora daughter farm in Sicily, Mm. Vincenza, she's recommended that we do a few courses and that we read a few books. And we were totally smitten by olive oil culture, head over heels with it. We did a pruning course. We did a tasting course. Um, we visited any agronomist who could fit us in to talk about olive oil farming because we wanted to plant two new groves. We considered applying for... Fun. Anyway, we just we just took it to the nth degree.
0: <laughs> and all, this was all happening... You could do all these courses in Sicily? Yeah. And all in Italian? Or were they in yep.
1: English? <laughs> oh, okay, yes. So yeah. you need your Italian... Do you know I think there are there are some expensive versions of all of the above in English but expensive yeah and because we were there for a year and a half we saw them we researched them and we thought gosh we can't we're not going to spend two thousand pounds ahead no. on this there's a parallel set of courses which are funded by the government but they're all in Italian that, right. you, that you have to fight to find out about you know yeah, yeah. and we, we found out about the local one in Sicily and They said, oh, it's starting next month. We'll send you details uh, in the next couple of weeks of the start of the course. But we've got your name down. We've got your booking. And then that was postponed for six months. So, you know, how can you do that from the UK? I mean, yeah, this, is, yeah. this is why, you know, people spend two grand on expensive courses because the, the dates are set in stone. Yes, yes <laughs> it's, it definitely will go ahead or you'll get
0: your refund. Yeah, there, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so we did this course and we got totally obsessed, but yes. also we ran out of money and realised that you can't sell olive oil to Sicilians because most of them have their own. They have own themselves. Yeah. So, we've got to sell this olive oil to British people. And, and in the meantime, you know, we thought that probably the most, sensible place for the children to go to school and for us to have an income that wasn't just olive oil and or tourism we would have to come back to Britain so we we came back but not to London and actually that's been that was it was a good decision but yeah. I think we were a little bit I think we knew what we were getting ourselves in for in a sense that you know because I, I grew up in Taunton and. I know the Southwest, mm. but it has been a real shock I can imagine. To our, so, shock to our systems yeah. to be somewhere small. and. But there's this pros and cons to everything. I mean, I think you can over-idolise rural lifestyles, can't you? And it's mm. good to be reminded that life is life everywhere. Here it's just muddier. <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: it's in, in the, and I think also it's down to community too, that feeling yeah. comfortable within the community that you're living. And, and if you don't, then as it's such an important part of life if you possibly can you you move to 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 where you do feel comfortable and yes and no because it also takes time of it takes course. a
1: huge amount of time and i think um, i think one thing that in, in london it doesn't necessarily london you move around a lot because your tribe moves around a lot so it doesn't yeah. really matter where you live yeah. but once you settle in london then you make friends on your street and in your neighbourhood but that doesn't happen overnight does it? Two, three years maybe of walking out the front door and seeing the same people so I think you know it's taken us a bit of time to find our feet here in Malmesbury and so we started selling our oil here in these little market towns. Okay um, so like a farmer's
0: market? or Farmer's market
1: exactly because we don't have a huge amount of oil so it's not that hard to sell and once we now we've got you know friends that We've made here and friends in London. So we essentially managed to sort of almost pre sell all of our oil before we've even picked it. Oh my goodness. And when we, yeah, we don't sort of, we're not formal about it. We don't take, no. we're, we're rubbish at this sort of thing. We don't take down orders and stuff. But people kind of just ask us every three months with hopeful looking eyes Have you got any more oil? <laughs> yes. Have you got any more? You once you do taste once you do taste a farmer's oil once you get used to a certain quality of oil mm. it is very difficult to go back to the sort of the cheaper supermarket oil that you might have been perfectly happy with before because yeah. you really can tell the difference and also it's the, the fact that they know that I've picked that olive with my hand and that there's nothing grimy or going on in that process which is back to what we've said before about the human rights to know what you're putting in your, your mouth exactly that it's healthy that it's not damaging any environment or any body we haven't got that with so much of our food even the homegrown food you yeah. know yeah. we have our red tractors and our marks and stuff but we don't know that farmer we don't exactly. we've lost it's, it's,
0: that connection definitely and I think that sort of lockdown and last 2020 particularly I I saw more Mm. and more people starting to grow their own vegetables because they had the time for starters so a bit more time and suddenly everybody's got very interested or more so in what they're putting in their mouth and they're knowing if if this is coming out of my bit of soil or I mean people are even growing things not in soil but
1: by air um, yeah, um, I mean, um, yeah, polyphon yeah, the water as well. Yes, yeah. exactly. So exactly. I think I think that that hits. You know, the pandemic has brought into relief our concerns about our health. Even though yeah. the virus, I mean, the virus is connected to the food system, isn't it? Of course it is, yeah. but not in our homegrown food system. Yes. But the impacts of it has been very much telling on our own homegrown food system, and we realise how reliant we are on big supermarkets. Yeah. And we don't. And there's something that's whilst you can kind of keep your blinkers on, that's fine. But as soon as the blinkers come off, you realise I don't want to be so reliant on exactly on you know, the five big supermarkets.
0: Exactly, and and I think I mean that's another conversation we can have. So many, yeah. so many topics here. But coming back yeah. to the actual olive oil. So the the olives that you have in Sicily, what? What are they? Are they just a one... Uh, what cultivar or variety. Cultivar, variety, that's right. Um, <laughs> so sorry, little I know. Um, but I'm willing to learn. Um, yes, a cultivar <laughs> of, or variety of, of olive. And what makes your particular olive oil special shall we say special yes
1: well so there's a all, joke that, uh, in, that <laughs> in italy that everybody says that their grandfather's oil is the best oh, really? <laughs> um because it's a matter of you know, taste is a funky thing isn't it i think we we understand taste in the in the, the frontal lobes of our brain mm-hmm. which is very close to where we hold all of our emotions and very early memories like the, the the conscious bit of our brain so when you taste something and it's familiar then it takes you back to those early memories of feeling safe and secure and familiar. Yes, yeah. So uh, there's a, the, sometimes on the olive oil course that we, the, the tasting course that we did, there's a lot of concentration in the beginning of the course on identifying defects. Because I think it's something like 70% of olive oils in supermarkets, this is where I get slammed a libel case, are not extra virgin <laughs> When they're blind tested by qualified tasters hmm. Um, they are identified. So without any sort of knowledge bias, because you don't know what you're tasting, 70% of them are no longer, even if they were at the start, extra virgin. So when you do a course, you just spend a lot of time working out defects. Because if an extra virgin olive oil, even if it's acidity is fine, if it's done cold and all the, you know, it's followed all the rules, at the point when it was bottled, it could be extra virgin. They can fall away quite quickly from that standard because of storage issues. Um, anyway, so you have to work out how to taste the most basic defects to be able to tell that. Yeah. They ha- if it has any defect, rancid, musty, uh, earthy, uh, there's all sorts of kind of things that can go wrong in the in the milling and bottling and storage process. um Then it's not a, it's not an extra virgin anymore. Right. And it also has to have. This is the second part of the course. It has to have um, the three qualities. Of olive oil, which are fruity, bitter, and pungent, and so if 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 those are out of sync, if you've got one defect and not one of the qualities, you can't call it extra virgin olive oil. And so those go quite quickly as well if you leave your bottle on the shelf in a supermarket or out the back, and it gets affected by heat or light. Mm-hmm. um then it can no longer so 70 percent that's really that high you know you could hard. be buying quite an expensive bottle and it's yeah. still not extra virgin yeah and extra virgin has got all that punch in it that special one percent of the content of the oil it's got all the polyphenols all the antioxidants all the vitamins so um what makes ours special well i like the taste of it because as i said it's the it's the taste <laughs> that i remember and yes. uh, on our course there was a lady who in the first half was tasting all these rancid oils which is the most common defect because it's gone off mm. you know, the acidity has got high it's gone and she said oh this tastes like our oil at home so she's used to rancid oil and that's familiar to her right Rancid oil is not very good for you no, so no, <laughs> whether that's... you like it or not is irrelevant <laughs> so you have to train your brain Retrain. to recognize quality yeah. <laughs> yeah so she did by the end of that week she was like okay i get it these do taste nicer <laughs> so i think ours has the qualities and no defects i'm pretty sure otherwise we've had it tested you have to have it tested yeah not just chemically tested but also a taste panel a qualified taste panel has said that, yes, this is extra virgin. We don't have much, and so luckily we sell it really quickly because another thing is you can't sit on olive oil for a long time. That's, mm. So what makes extra virgin olive oil good, different, is that it's fresh. You have to yeah. have it fresh. Yes. The EU says you have to put 18 months as a best before, which right. is not used by.
0: Yes.
1: And yes. Um, and they put that on when you bottle it, not when it's made.
0: Aha. And, and you so, bottle it, how, yeah. how far... What's the time frame between... Making it and bottling it generally, or what should it be?
1: So, this is a choice, it's it's not legislated. Hmm. Okay, all right.
0: So, we're starting to hear words like evu which actually is the uh, acronym for extra virgin olive oil, which I actually only realized the other day. I was thinking, What's (laughs) evu And then I suddenly clicked. Yeah, those those people who've
1: known me forever and know me as Olive Oil Sarah haven't worked out what EVO was. (laughs) So...
0: (laughs) So Going to a supermarket. So this is this has come quite recently for me as well. Understanding yeah. the importance of olive oil and the differences in olive oils and mm. the, the the polyphenols that that are mm. are are, um, are so good for you. Yeah. And I suppose my question is that one is when you go to a supermarket, what do you look for? And second from what I just
1: said, if if you're if if you now know that the best type of oil is the super fresh extra virgin olive oil yeah but there's no way of you telling when that olive oil was made mm. somebody's trying to keep some information from you yes because a really on it producer is going to put their harvest date on their bottle right yeah. so look for the, the harvest date. date
0: and there are a few and, that do definitely in yeah. the supermarket because i had a look the other day yeah so they have the harvest date and then really from the harvest date you really should Consume that olive oil within
1: eighteen months, two years, one year, six months. <laughs> you should, uh, you know, in an ideal world, I think if you look at there's like a little chart in the, in the science books about polyphenols dropping off. Yeah. And modern storage way they bottle now, so dark bottle or yeah. tin, mm-hmm. a label that says where the oil is from. Yes. Preferably, you're going to get it from one region of the world. So now they've got other, they've got um, names like PDO, DOP, this protected origin and IGP, which is a a, a geographic region like Sicily. Yeah. So that's the harvest date. So so actually it can store really well because it's a very stable thing. But the polyphenols, what you're talking about, that's 1% of that oil and they're very volatile. So once you've opened the bottle, Mm. they're going to start to dissipate and your oil is going to start to oxidate and go off. So you could possibly keep that oil for 18 months because that's what, you know, the graph though of the polyphenols in a closed bottle probably will stay quite high in the closed bottle. And the longer you wait, the steeper that fall is going to be. Okay. Okay. So then it's kind of like a math game. Anyway, the point yeah. is, once you've opened the bottle, whether it's six months old or 18 months old, the quicker you can finish it, the <laughs> more benefit you're going to get. Okay. And you keep okay. the bottle shut. You keep it away from heat and light. Heat and light, yes. But then, it's, then you're just positioning yourself on the curve because of, fresher oil will hold the polyphenols better once opened yes and older oil will lose them quickly once opened so there's no benefit of you buying so one of the oils that i'm doing a tasting for a a travel company this is really good so
0: we would definitely want our (laughs) listeners to get on to
1: yeah if you google sarah wolferson olive oil or find me on instagram as Alivu Sicily, i'm going to be doing a talk on Extra virgin olive oil and trying two oils, one from Spain and one from Greece, on the twenty seventh of February. So I think you have to sign up by the twenty sixth on Context Travels website, or, okay. might or find I'll leave with Sicily on Instagram. I will
0: put the the links in the show notes, so they fantastic they can, they can get to. So
1: that. one of the oils I've bought, and I think you've had it as well, Emma, is um has been discounted because it's two thousand and nineteen harvest yes. from Jaya, um so it's we're getting on a bit now. <laughs> they've, ha- they've basically, when you see a discounted oil, it's old. Yeah. But I've, I've picked it on purpose because I want to see when we open it whether we can still taste. the the qualities yeah I think you can you can still taste the qualities but then you'd be trying to use that oil really quickly yeah yeah Um, and that goes back to in the US and the UK we use less than one litre per head a year on average see now
0: I'm so that's (laughs) that's like a 500 mil bottle and now because I'm only using olive oil in absolutely everything cakes everything even in the morning no butter I'm putting olive oil on my sourdough (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. <laughs> like literally, and it's just it's completely changed my taste buds and food tastes so much better but i i would say between the two of us can see we consume that bottle within two weeks maximum so we're yeah. getting through it fairly fast but yeah you're not far fast off enough? what we're doing
1: so we we would have a half a liter bottle between four of us in four days five days yeah yeah and yes. There's there's double amount of us, isn't there? But this is
0: I mean, also this is a mental game, isn't it? In terms of yeah. you look at a, a bottle that's nine ninety nine and twelve ninety I think that's really expensive. Whereas at the bottom, at the bottom of the shelf, they're three twenty nine and five. But then, when you think yeah. of a bottle of wine, and you yeah. wouldn't buy a two ninety nine bottle of wine, you'd buy at least a ten ninety nine bottle of wine if you want to buy a bigger one. It, yeah, and, and you, you drink stop. it in an evening. Yeah, and a bottle of wine you'll drink exactly in one evening. And if you think of a bottle of olive oil that still has its properties, like polyphenols and and yeah. anti. Oxidants and everything else it's worth it because you're putting something that's actually good into your body but my question to you is actually also the with the with the the ones that are low quality well lower priced and and clearly they don't have the polyphenols and antioxidants or do they have some is it yeah i still i
1: think that they i would still Possibly use that rather than another seed oil. Yeah. To be honest, because that's the question. But, um, Is it, does it does it just yeah.
0: become like the base? Does it does the olive oil still have a, a a quality in the sense that it's a basis for them what you're cooking? But it doesn't have the um, the power property, shall we say, of 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 a of a more expensive olive oil. Yeah,
1: I think I think you're right. I think that 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 cheap tin of oil or that cheap see through bottle of oil, you in a way, you might as well get the sunflower oil. Yeah. Because yeah. that's very good for you as well. You know, that's yeah. seed some seed oils have exactly the same balance of fatty acids and omegas as olive oil does. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of argument about olive oil um, not being as healthy. You see the other seed oil people saying, it's not as healthy as they say it is. And what's all the fuss about? Mm. Whereas, you know, I disagree. But I think once you get to the cheaper end of olive oil then yep. there's probably no difference between that. Although yeah. there has been scientific research saying it's better to cook in a in an olive oil rather than an extra virgin olive oil than, than, a, than another oil. But yeah. you know, I think you're starting to kind of get between a really subtle difference. Yeah. What worries me about those cheaper oils is that they might have defects and then you're basically, you're doing yourself harm yeah. by having a rancid oil. Do you see what I mean? Like, because yeah. it's not, you shouldn't, it's, it's it's bad for you to have something that's gone off. You wouldn't have on gone off butter. I go, oh, well, it tastes the same. You know, I'm yeah. cooking in it. It's yeah. rancid butter. i will cook in it. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they say you're cooking in something that's that's gone off. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in which case we're coming. The back other thing to... is the price point is yeah. really relevant to how that that product has been farmed. Mm-hmm. And they're not all olive oil is not all made in the same way. Extra virgin olive oil is not all made in the same way. So the intensive, um, super intensive farms are very damaging to the land and biodiversity. But that's how they manage to make it cheaper because they're harvesting tons of olives in a day yes and they're milling tons of olives at once producing thousands of liters in mega mills Mm. um and yeah so that's you might they might pass their sensory and chemical analysis for being extra virgin olive oil but the environmental impact is really large olives traditionally have been grown on the rubbish land because you couldn't grow anything else there Really? Okay. Yeah. So they're on, in mountainous areas, also because olives don't like to have soggy feet. They like to have um, dry roots, dryish roots, well, yes. really well drained soil. Um, they don't need. They don't ask for much. They don't need to be irrigated or fed. Or you know, it was enough that they were in the mountains and had occasional like sheep or cows underneath them. You know, half <laughs> composting the ground. But now, partly because of the Common Agricultural Policy and the attractiveness of olive oil, super-intensive farms are being um, are just about overtaking traditional farms in terms of the quantity of the hectares and quantity of oil being produced. And super-intensive farms are not great. Um, So when you think about, you know, cheaper, we want everything to be cheaper. Why is olive oil so expensive? It's so much more expensive than than the equivalent organic, whatever. You know. I find it really hard to have that argument about um, oilseed rape, cold press uh, organic oilseed rape, because of uh, because of the environmental impact oh, of, yeah. of rape, <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly, <laughs> of, you know,
0: uh, and the well, suitability that, of that
1: for our diet. And
0: I don't actually like the taste of rapeseed oil, and everything that I've tried to cook in it tastes weird. But maybe I'm yeah. not done for. I,
1: I've stupid. got to say, I'm I'm with you there. I kind of wanted to like it because yeah. I'd heard so many nice things about it. But I think that if it doesn't enhance your food then mm. and, and also it's quite a damaging winter crop yes. that you know has lots of problems associated with it. If, then, then I I would go for extra virgin but traditionally farmed extra virgin because I know that the environmental impact is lower. When yeah, I, you know, it might be more expensive, but then you're paying for the environment you know, that's the cost of the yes. environmental resource in a way that you're that you're um painful and also people's livelihoods and Definitely. traditional farming communities and they uh, those these hill hilltop farms are abandoning their groves because it's so expensive to mm-hmm. to pay for labor mm. to farm and and these trees so that's a real shame because when you think of olive oil you don't necessarily think of super intensive groves yeah no no you don't that's why i think sure that's the long answer to why i think our <laughs> our olive oil is superior because we farm we farm in a, a regenerative way we've stopped plowing our fields they used to plow them in spring to cut back all the weeds which compete with the olive trees also because there's a fire risk associated with these weeds because yeah. sicily they forest fires and and groves burn down all the time they just plow the top half meter 20 no even that 20 centimeters okay um uh, but that soil gets lost down the slope course, when yeah. with heavy rainfall in the summer which yeah. is becoming increasingly frequent because of climate change mm. so we and there's been lots of eu studies on this as well backing it up so you shouldn't we shouldn't plow as as much as we have if at all so now the weeds get cut back and basically we're in, encouraging grasses mm-hmm. to grow there which will be mown down and left in situ mm-hmm. And that helps to hold the soil. soil. Yeah, Yeah, to stop the soil erosion exactly, and to feed the soil. So, and we're small scale. Like, I mean, a lot of olive groves are less than a hectare, Mm. two acres. So, unless those people can find a way of selling that oil through their mill at a good price, they can't afford to look after those trees. No, no, no. I remember last year
0: when you were out in sicily and i saw and i thought oh yes next year which was now no, so it's 2019 was, yeah. you were you were harvesting
1: yeah that thought, was our uh, last big harvest that's was right, and i said i'm
0: going to come out next year and help you which was Aww. 2020 which of course <laughs> nobody went anywhere did they
1: <laughs> did no, you and we didn't to... have a great harvest so who harvested your <laughs> olives so, the village where village small town where we have our groves is called Villa Rosa and it's right in the middle of Sicily and it's where Paolo's family originally came from and some of them are still there. Right. His uncle, who um, is, had studied agriculture and has been working in that sector, in the public sector, uh, on development for Enna's town council a regional council sorry the capital of the of the province is Enna which is Mm -hmm. a beautiful town right in the middle of Sicily he still lives in Villarosa he was the mayor of Villarosa (laughs) a few years ago (laughs) so he um he went out there I mean he's retired now he's in his late 60s he still has a lot of farmland that he manages with his cousins so we managed to get some labourers to come and help us so we paid for people to harvest our olives this year okay. and we're paying the same um, work farm worker to prune our trees this year which is really upsetting because usually we prune our trees ourselves as well and we've got about 300 380 trees oh, wow. 190 of them are very young we planted them when the kids were born very oh, romantically yes. That's lovely. <laughs> so they still need pruning but we're very yeah. precious about it because we want them to have a particular shape and style that mm-hmm. you know the, the pruning decision is it's very creative pruning, and it's and it's, I love it. And in fact, I've become a gardener here in the UK in the last three years because I, I love pruning so much. <laughs> if you ask my gardening colleagues, they call me um, slasher Sarah because I'm just like, let's prune. <laughs> I love it, it's so creative to Is prune it? trees. Really love that they respond well to, okay. to being pruned. You create a shape, you create light, you create healthy trees, okay. Um, and if you don't prune olive trees, they turn into nasty little spiky shrubs basically an right. olive tree wants to be a bush yes so okay. so yes uh, we haven't been able to do any of those things but hopefully next this october 2021 yes. they'll let us travel and we hope to have something to harvest although the year after you prune there are less olives anyway naturally because okay. olives grow on the second year of growth right okay a bit like your raspberries you know you have to leave canes yes yes
0: yeah yes My goodness, it's a job really, isn't it?
1: It is a total job and I wish that we could kind of be there and survive on a skeleton income because because Sicily has so much potential for olive oil tourism and gastronomical tourism and it is starting to happen. There are some really good things happening all over the Southern Med as people have caught hold of the idea of the Mediterranean diet and the fact that if you want to eat well and you respect that culture, you have to know where to get that product otherwise yeah. you're just buying into something that's marketing
0: yes yes so while you've been here you yeah. you've become an olive
1: oil is it ambassador or i think what... that's the that's the right term i'm sort of flirting with the I idea like of the sommelier, sommelier as well because it's it's a new and growing profession to help people choose different types of oil extra virgin olive oils yes. for different foods because there's so many varieties of olive tree out there there's well they're all olea europea but then the net you know a bit like we have how many types of roses there are that many there is about 700 types of at least of uh, olive tree um and sicily italy has about 500 of them and my Sicily goodness. has about 70 of them. So it's <laughs> so very rich. Yes. And it's become super trendy and, uh, to have monovarietals. And the fact mm. the two oils that we'll be tasting in my context travel talk are monovarietals. But bear in mind that monovarietals are probably slightly more on the intensive side of farming. Are um, they? Okay. They're more recent, yeah. Because traditionally you wouldn't have just one variety. In fact, you can't just have one variety because mm. you need to have a pollinator. Okay. Like apple trees, of course. Yeah. Um, but if you, you 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 intersperse your pollinators and you separate them from the harvest, ridiculously, you know, you have to. It has to be on a scale for this to be practical. Essentially, yes. Yeah, yeah. Traditional farms will have a number of varieties. They won't even know what they are. In fact, our farm. You asked. This was your first question. You asked me. What makes yours special? Is it just one variety? Yeah. Well, we've got about eighty trees that are hundreds of year, years old. There's probably different oh, varieties on I. that tree. Yeah. <laughs> That's one tree can be like a family of varieties because you graft a branch onto the wild olive rootstock okay. so who knows we'd have to dna analysis different branches <laughs> but that's that's then that not is, gonna happen that
0: is the beauty of of each each individual farm everyone will have exactly. its own taste so i think that's that's part exactly of the, part of the enjoyment of having olive oil is that there is exactly
1: one. and what's the, the sort of the weird thing about supermarket food is that it's we want to have a variety of tastes, yet we want the food to taste the same, so you know what you're buying. Mm. And it's actually the, the opposite is the case because mm. my olives, I, so the we, so ones we planted, we know what they are. But, but basically, we know we know for sure that all of our olive varieties are Sicilian because what, nobody would have brought <laughs> trees from some; would have been pointless to bring trees from somewhere else. You know, they're local. They're yes. from the nursery down the road or from that person over there who had some spare trees. You know. And in our grove, some trees will produce more one year and others Mm. will be resting. Some will have fared better against the olive oil fly and Mm. some will have dropped, depending on when they come to maturity, because they all come to maturity at slightly different times. So my oil will taste different from year to year. It will have a broadly familiar taste of Sicilian extra virgin olive oils, which are light to medium. strength yeah in terms of that bitterness pepperiness fruitiness and they kind of are unified in a they taste of fresh cut grass and green tomatoes that's basically sicilian olive oils Mm -hmm. with with change it you know but they will change year on year so yeah. that so when you have my oil you'll recognize it but it could be different this year compared yeah. to last year you know and that's genuine that's authentic that's how it should be you know oh. your courgettes one courgette tastes different to the next one from the same plant well exactly
0: i mean that, and that is that's organic growing really isn't it that's yeah. that is and yeah. it's going we've we've kind of been um conditioned almost by the supermarket that everything mm. has to be a certain shape size and if it doesn't then there's something wrong yeah. with it whereas it should it's actually the other way around
1: <laughs> yeah so, so in, um, in a supermarket if you want to kind of fa- start finding your way around olive oils knowing that how to buy it with a dark tin or la- dark tin or bottle with the label that has a harvest yeah um looking to see where the o- olives come from if you wanted to start getting a bit of a vocabulary in your brain of taste then you could try oh mine says my battery is going to run out Oops. in a minute just a second yeah, sure. you could um if you start with some mono varieties to get a taste for them but find at a farmer's market or online producers who bring their own olive oil across and there are a fair few actually Yes. Yeah, yeah. and try and try their olive oil once yeah. you kind of know what the mono varieties or the pdos dops igps taste like and that's a, a mark of quality then switch to a, to buying direct from the producer as soon as you can mm. um and form a relationship with them and and they'll tell you oh look look, I didn't get a harvest this year if they always have olive oil be suspicious because they're a year do you know what I mean that shouldn't that That shouldn't be that doesn't happen (laughs) yeah exactly Uh, or if they say oh we haven't got enough this year I'm sorry but my friend or you'll find two or three and you'll always have enough yeah and don't lay it aside use it don't keep it use it fresh yeah and if you're stuck for a period. 3 months you don't have any oil or that year you don't have any oil then go back to the supermarket and try there again go back and try some PDOs and IGP's yeah um have four or five bottles on the go at once if yeah. you can face, yes, <laughs> face actually, it. Yes, actually at the moment we do, we have four on the go. Well, exactly. Because then you're like, actually, this is totally different from yeah. it. Learn to taste. And yeah. if you can't follow me, Google it because there's some other people who do the basics of how to taste. Mm. Don't taste it with bread. Don't, yet yeah, yeah. for the beginning, taste it on its own and then taste the same so food with different oils. And that's what sommelier training is all about. Mm. So yeah, since, since we started selling it at the markets, we stopped selling at markets, but I missed talking to people about what it means to taste an extra virgin olive oil, what you should be looking for. Yeah. yeah because yeah. it's not that hard, actually. And I, I would surprise people. I would say, you know, come and have a shot of olive oil, but you've never had a shot of olive oil to get them to come because people would be like, no, I, you know, it's 11 o'clock Ooh, yes. in the morning. <laughs> I, I've just eaten. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm just asking you to have a sip. <laughs> it is a high calorie. You do get quite full with olive oil, which mm. is quite nice if you need a snack it's probably healthier for you to have bread and oil rather yeah. than cheese and crackers you yeah. know like you fill up really quickly on it so yeah they would be tasting it and, and be amazed that with just with me at five minutes saying warm it up sniff it slurp it breathe out feel it on the back of your throat those are the qualities can you taste something that's a little bit like paint stripper or sweaty socks that's a defect or sometimes I would bring the end of an of a I can't even say the brand but <laughs> okay. you know the, the two or three brands that are always super cheap at the end of the supermarket um, aisle I would bring them from the end of a tasting that I'd done with some friends and say try this one, this is a really cheap, you probably have this one at home for cooking don't you? Don't cook in it please don't cook in <laughs> it and they would taste that really kind of hot, unpleasant yeah, yeah. Su- sweaty or you know the smell it, They're, oh I don't want to eat that now yeah. and you can really quickly smell and taste a good extra virgin olive oil okay. and then then you can start to taste the other ones at the supermarket or taste the borough market olive oils or the or the stroud market olive oils and and know that actually that is person is doing the legitimate a legitimate thing and not just marketing you a lifestyle yeah
0: yeah yes no 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 i think it's that's interesting because i mean olive oil would be the last thing you think you have to actually do a tasting on but in fact when we start talking about it it makes perfect sense that you have to and then yeah and and you taste you should taste anyone like you taste a wine and say does it taste off and if it does don't drink it don't use it yeah
1: yeah the olive oil um, marketing industry has very much adopted some of the wine mentality because 30 40 years ago wine was horrid basically Mm. it was only a few really nice wines that nobody could afford but now it's got we've got much more knowledgeable but I think in the same sense with wine you know how you've got your favorite whites and your favorite reds and you kind of you do think oh we're having this meal tonight maybe I'll have that white not that white or maybe you don't. Maybe you're just like, oh, I'm having fish. I'll have white wine. Yeah. But you yeah. know you've got three or four favourites. Exactly. I think obviously if you said that to a wine sommelier in a restaurant, they'd, they'd hit the roof and say, no, you need this particular wine for this particular dish. Because that's a taste combination which enhances both the experience of the wine and the food. And you're like, OK, maybe in a restaurant, but at home. <laughs> yes,
0: exactly. So so on, let's get our sommeliers <laughs> are,
1: Yeah. That's what an olive oil sommelier profession is trying to do. They're trying to sort of introduce themselves into the world of fine dining. Not mm. just fine dining, but basically fine dining. And say, this particular year, this Grand Cru olive oil, because they're really borrowing exactly the same terms, this Grand Cru olive oil is particularly good with this pasta dish or this meat dish. I think that can almost intimidate people of not knowing which olive oil to have with what food. yeah. yeah. Because olive oils aren't, you know, they, they do definitely do it, try it. But I think once you've got your three or four oils that you know go well with legumes or soups or meat or on your bread, yeah. you possibly don't have to go too mad no, <laughs> with no, the whole I sommelier. Mean, exactly,
0: exactly. So, actually, so coming on for that food idea, so what if you had to name three foods or three things that you enjoy ah. eating or drinking
1: <laughs> with olive oil?
0: <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm losing my voice what
1: ought to be? Uh, It's a hard question because as you said earlier (laughs) the Mediterranean diet has olive oil in everything yeah but um, we really love putting it raw onto our soups or our lentils because honestly you get this aroma of the Mm. oil Mm. and the food tastes so much nicer because you've got this fresh vegetable taste coming from it that maybe wasn't in your leek and potato soup or your or your lentil soup and yeah. so I think that's really satisfying because it makes you think, oh gosh, this olive oil is making my food <laughs> so, so much just, nicer. You just drizzle it over the top, then. Oh yeah, I read something on Instagram yesterday. <laughs> it was nice. pour, don't drizzle, pour. <laughs> and I love, <laughs> I love that because one of the things that I noticed on uh, my market stall experiences was somebody would buy my oil in December and then they'd walk past me in June. And I may or may not recognize them. I go, come and try my olive oil. Have you tried real extra virgin olive oil? And they go, oh, but, I, but don't you remember? I bought a bottle in December. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, we've got so many faces. So you must need some more. And they go, oh, no. <laughs> they hadn't finished it. Pour, pour the olive oil. What do you mean you haven't finished it? <laughs> once you've opened it you know you've bought yourself a treat yeah why you wouldn't you wouldn't have you know 10 pound bottle of wine sitting on the counter for four days even with the vacuum pump you know like you're treating it like like it's your treat but don't don't hoard it it's like perfume isn't it (laughs) exactly I know a lot lot of mums from the school run that have bought our oil and they say they hide it from their husband's (laughs) because their husbands will literally glug it. And I said, well, just buy what? one more oil next time. Yeah. husband You should be happy with that your you husband doing this. Glug- <laughs> yes. what- so I love it on soups and legumes. Mm. Um, we also, uh, we make our breads, we make our focaccia breads with it. We make, Funny. we roast our vegetables with it. So yeah. I, w- I would be really sad if I couldn't have it in my focaccia recipes or in roasted veg. Um, And then we haven't done too much making our cakes with it, I have to say. So although I hear that's a really grand thing to do, but yeah, bruschetta. Bruschetta is the obvious thing, isn't it? When you um, chop up tomatoes, garlic and mint and then have your bruschetta. Another dish that which would not work with any other food um any other dressing is orange salad so in the winter there are so many oranges in sicily You're falling over them mm. um and if you can get hold of some s- seasonal uh, sicilian oranges they're yeah. a real treat they're so tasty they've got a lot of personality because i think we, we in the common agricultural policy we, we've all got a lot of spanish olives haven't we and yes yeah. the varieties are more limited they're, italian olives sicilian olives are, are really sw- the red blood oranges and anyway you kind of you don't think of it do you having oranges and olive oil but the, it is magnificent mm. so you sort of slice your oranges yeah. in a pretty pattern along the along the center so yes. you can have these gorgeous circles and then the sicilians will quite often chop up spring onions yeah capers but not the vinegary capers okay, the okay. salty capers yeah. so you have to r- wash off the salt obviously put that on top and and then glug <laughs> pour <laughs> some really fresh grassy fresh green oh, tomato sounds, olive oil yeah. on top and have an orange salad so it's quite a typical thing okay. an orange salad it's amazing and that wouldn't work without you can't put dressing or mayonnaise on that it
0: can't
1: be anything else you know
0: yes i think the only orange salad i've had is orange and then finely slicing with fennel is lovely
1: Yes, that's another so fennel. That's... The fennels in Sicily are a, a sight to oh, behold. They're, they're amazing. Yeah. So, another recipe is the fennel salad. Mm. Yeah. They, they quite often at the end of a meal just bring out a bowl of fennels. Oh, wow. Cleaned and cut. That's just just entire, huge. And then you get your fennel instead of getting your apple or your. Yeah. And just eat the entire fennel. Oh, and it's brilliant. one of the biggest things that surprised me about the Mediterranean diet is that without fail, the fruit comes out at the end of the meal and everybody takes one or two pieces of fruit. Mm. So they've eaten two portions of veg in that meal easily mm. Mm. and then they'll have two bits of fruit just at lunchtime. I mean, obviously they have long lunches, but, yeah, yeah. but there's always fruit. And sometimes the fruit is the fennel. And it's is lovely. That's great. I, don't, yeah. I get a bit sad buying them here because they don't taste the same. <laughs> that's the thing you've been spoilt,
0: haven't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's... Uh... Yeah, that's the tragedy again of, of of not being able to grow your own and not having the yeah. weather, actually, the climate. Not to having grow the so I tried
1: growing like. fennels last year in my allotment yeah. and it didn't work. And the other thing, which is quintessentially um, Sicilian, is aubergines and peppers. That's the When I said the roast veg, quite often we'll treat ourselves to aubergines and peppers in the summer just because, even though they're not as big or as cheap as they are in Sicily, it's just because it's. Oh, and pesto. I think that's oh, another yes, big pesto. thing that yes. if you have a really nice, if you're making your own pesto, mm. then don't. Don't um don't stint on the extra virgin olive oil. Yeah. So to make pesto, I get one of those, those little um either the, the tub that the, the handheld blender oh, yeah, comes yes, in. Yes. Or if you've broken or lost that, then a little plastic measuring jug.
0: Yeah.
1: And I would yeah. take the whole plant from the supermarket, the small one, the big one, probably the small one, let's say, all of its leaves apart from the tiny ones, I will put in there. Yeah. Uh one clove of garlic. Some salt and pepper, some pine nuts, like uh, the bottom yeah. of your palm of pine nuts, Yeah. and it goes. And then, so that's quite full that jug by this point yeah. with all these ingredients. I would uh, hold the oil. It was it pours down the leaves, and I won't stop until I see about a centimetre nearly a centimetre of oil at the bottom of that jug okay so that's quite a lot of oil because it's coated coated all the leaves coated all your ingredients yeah. before it's settled at the yes. bottom it's a lot of oil yeah and and it's amazing because you've got that fresh taste of the olive oil with the basil and it's the taste of summer yeah. so again I don't think I could cope without our olive oil for <laughs> <laughs> when I'm making pesto and we make it every week in the summer I yeah. know you can get basil plants in winter but it just doesn't feel right to me <laughs> It's not the same, is it? <laughs> not the same. So it's a, it's a summer dish for us. So yeah. in the winter, lentils and soups, yes, and focaccia and roasted um root veg. And in the summer, pestos, roasted um Mediterranean veggies, and of course salads. Salads yeah. all the time. We don't put um we don't make a dressing, that's another thing that we do quite a lot in Britain. And we experts in, in covering the taste of our olive oil with vinegar and oregano, and salt, and pepper, and a squeeze of lemon. And by the time you've done that, you really, you shouldn't probably have bothered with the extra version. <laughs> I mean, at least you're at least you getting the health, but I, no, I'm wrong. You're getting the health benefits yeah. of the extra version, of it, but you're not tasting it. So yeah. if you've got a bottle of oil that you think, oh, well, that was an interesting experiment. Don't really like that. <laughs> then, then do your complicated dressing with that because you won't taste it. Salads in our household don't have any vinegar. It's just our oil, salt, Brilliant. And sometimes with a little bit of um, home home homegrown oregano on top. Oregano? How do you say it? Yes. Oregano. 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 (laughs)
0: Oregano. Oregano. Yeah. There's so many ways of saying it. Oregano.
1: Original. Oregano.
0: Oregano. 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 How do they say
1: it? Is that how they say it in Italian? That's how they say it in Italian. And I think it's oregano in the states, isn't it? Oregano. Yeah. Oregano. Yes. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I can't. I can't unlearn that. Sorry. That's so, right. so that's the best I think like oil salt and pepper and a bit of oregano right. on your salads or for your bread like I think that's the the most common way that we eat it anyway in our house is bread and oil yeah classic yes um, Delicious. but um on, on bread salads veg uh, this is why when people say I can't get through a bottle of oil in six months I think what are you doing oh, what, what is it <laughs> what are you cooking with yes and there's so many chefs now that are showing their dishes throughout the year that are olive oil based. If you follow hashtags on Instagram um, chefs and chefs and EVOO, you will see them tagging their dishes. And, and, and that's a great thing that chefs are starting to say, not just uh, you know use olive oil. They're saying use extra virgin olive oil because yeah. there's a massive difference. So olive oil is the cruddy oil that they can't sell as extra virgin that hasn't passed the test, i.e. it's got defects or no qualities. When you taste qualities, you're tasting the polyphenols. So if you cut, there are no qualities, there are no polyphenols, basically. Yeah, yeah. So they get that oil and then they heat it and strip it of its defects with petrol-based solvents and hexane, all those nasty things, to make it a dead oil. So it's literally just fatty acids then. Um, And then they add a percentage, I think it's gone up, to make it harder to do. It used to be a minimum of one percent of extra virgin olive oil. But now it's eight to ten percent. They add eight to ten percent of extra virgin olive oil to their dead oil <laughs> that once but had something what a to do waste with
0: it. What a waste of the extra virgin olive oil instead of bottling it as absolutely. The if they
1: didn't put that in, it would taste of nothing. Mm. And before they would before in the in the years when olive oil fraud was ripe, so you know, that luckily it's got better in the last 15 years, they would, and I think some people still do this, colour the olive oil with carotene because it's stripped of defects. It doesn't have a colour anymore. Mm. And add, um, no, sorry, chlorophyll. They'd add chlorophyll to make it green Mm. and they'd add carotene to make it taste of something that's not just, you know, to fool people essentially, that they were having something that was good. Mm. And they would would, uh, um, play with the acidity in the lab that it would pass the the taste now we have to have a sensorial analysis it has to be tasted because you can identify an adulted olive oil you can tell that that's got carotene and chlorophyll you can see it you can tell it um so don't buy olive oil essentially don't think oh well i'll get that one because it's it's then you might as well get a seed oil that that most seed oils are produced in a refinery Mm. so get that instead at one pound (laughs) fifty rather than go through you know rather than Drinking olive then, oils.
0: Yes. C- and the confusion, that's the
1: thing, the confusion between those two products. I think until the 1960s, most olive oil was olive oil because it was late harvest, it was sent straight to the refinery because we didn't have necessarily the culture in the, ma- in the majority of the world to know what extra virgin was anyway. But even in the countries, the producer countries that had the culture, they quite often had a an oil that was old or not, no longer extra virgin. And we're fine with that. You know, that was normal. Paolo's grandpa, who was making his own oil forever, only, had, only ate his own oil, nobody else's oil, would store his olive oil in an amphora, like a terracotta <laughs> amphora, with a great big cork, Air is an enemy of olive oil. And sometimes if it didn't taste nice anymore, unsurprisingly, because it's an amphora with a cork lid, he would put half a lemon in it. The culture of olive oil has changed enormously since the 1960s and 70s, since they've introduced different milling techniques, since they've been able to do things in a clean, hygienic way. So when we say, you know, they've known for centuries how good olive oil is in Italy and Greece, yes, but, you know, there's also ways and ways... And people have been talking about this forever, like Cato and Pliny in the first century AD are writing long tracts about the quality of extra virgin olive oil and don't let the olive go black, don't let the olive sit around for more than a day, don't let the miller convince you that it's better to have a black olive or an olive that sits on his floor do it green, do it straight away. And so even 2,000 years ago, they knew how to make an olive oil that was healthier and tastier. Right, interesting. Um, But some of that knowledge has been lost and and luckily it's come back.
0: Okay. That's okay, so, so, so I'm it's... sure you're
1: going to have to cut down lots of
0: this anyway. We've been talking for an hour and twenty yes, minutes. I know we should. <laughs> so, Sarah, I think we should probably wrap up the podcast yes. chat because it's been so fascinating, and I've oh, just cool. learned so much more about Oliver. And I'll make sure the podcast okay. listeners get the links to your website,
1: Ali Alivu Sicily. So Alivu Alivu. means olive Olive. in Sicilian. So AlivuSicily.com. And on Instagram, we're Alivu Sicily. And
0: Alivu is A-L-I-V-U. And you have links to your Saturday discussion on both those links as well. Yeah. Fantastic. (laughs) Well, um, Sarah, oh, actually, I did have one last question for you. If you could live anywhere in the world,
1: where would it be? (gasps) Yeah, it would definitely be Sicily. Would it? It'll yeah. definitely be Sicily. You'll be I mean, going back there but, to live
0: there permanently at one point, at some point. Do you think? Yeah, but I have. You have to
1: have a, a get out of Sicily in August clause to that contract. <laughs> it's very hot. <laughs> it's very hot. Um, July, August, September, very hot. So unless I can be like, unless I'm living on a boat or can be regularly dunked in water through <laughs> <till laughs> July, August. Yeah, because that year and a half we lived there, I really appreciated the British climate Did more you? than I can possibly. <laughs> Because you can't go out. I mean, you go out at 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and it's already too late because you just bake. It's so hot there. It's so hot. That would be my that would be my ideal because I miss my olive trees. I love going to the field. I love looking after each and every one of them. <laughs> there's So much I could do. We could yeah. do so much more. Um, we we have a great uh, link with Paolo's family out there and friends who uh, we can ask we can ask to help us and pay them. You know, yeah. which is Fair enough, you know. Part of the trickle down effect of selling our oil here is that we can afford to pay for labour um, and not abandon our trees. But um, yeah. yeah, I would love to live near my trees and have more sicilian sea but it is really hot there and um yeah there's a there's a lot of um a lot of sicilianness and sicilian ways of life that you have to adapt to living in sicily so you've got to you know make sure you if you do think of living somewhere in the southern med that you take off your rose-tinted specks buy an olive grove that's a good start because yes yes. I would love to help you get in touch with me if you want me to buy you an olive grove together we'll make amazing oil fantastic I think I could be your first first in the queue for that one you already hoodwinked I'll help me. you buy a one euro house and an olive grove and Perfect. then you know happiness can be found it's so exciting making olive oil it's so it's such a lovely way of well, making it growing anything is is amazing but the good thing about olive trees is they basically do it all themselves you know you really don't have to do <laughs> very much um you there are key moments in the year which you have to look after them but
0: yes
1: yeah it, they don't ask very much of you yeah especially if you're doing it bucolic romantic olive trees that okay. are well-spaced proper trees
0: Yes, wonderful well Sarah, I'd just like to say thank you so much for coming on the Travelling Through podcast and just explaining so much to us about olives and olive oil. You're welcome. um, As as you can probably tell, I get super excited talking about olives. Well, I've been totally hooked, I have to say. And um, it would be just wonderful that come October, November, when you're harvesting in 2021 even if it's just a few there be will great. be a few <laughs> it'd be wonderful just to come out and maybe do an update podcast out there in yeah, Sicily yeah. that would be great fun to yes
1: to aim that would for be great and then I could it. show you some show you my, some one euro houses
0: as well just it, to tempt you well yes that I could be very well tempted as you know from my <laughs> well, conservation what Sicily background,
1: needs yeah, what Sicily needs is really sensitive people to go and help it have a more sustainable. To join forces with the many Sicilians who are trying to do this yeah. to have a more sustainable way of living in rural areas because it's really beautiful out yeah. there. Yeah, if you haven't been to inland Sicily, it's absolutely gorgeous. The landscapes, the, and that's that's proper Sicilian life as well. By the coast, it's wonderful because you know, but it's quite touristy and, and developed yeah. now. Yeah. So um, if you're if you're looking for the the true soul of Sicily, then go inland. Go
0: inland. That sounds great to me. I will see you there in October, November 2021. Fantastic. (laughs) To my podcast listeners out there, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and you've been inspired by what Sarah has had to say. Please check out the show notes. And if you're interested on Saturday to tune into her workshop, Come Tasting, please do so. She'll be delighted to see you there. Otherwise, there'll be more coming out next week. But until then, take care and thanks for listening.